You're listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We continue only with your help. Visit mortificationofspin.org to make a donation or call 1-800-488-1888. That's 800-488-1888. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm your host, uh, Carl Truman. Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. And I'm joined uh, by my co-hosts, Amy Bird, the famous housewife theologian from the wilds of West Virginia, and Todd Pruitt, who is still, I believe, the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I think having been there now for whew, three or four months, is, is extending his pastorate beyond his previous record. So welcome, Todd <laughs> and Amy. Well, Carl, it's, uh, I wish I could say it was good to be with you, but after that crack, I'm not, uh, I'm not so sure. It is always good to be around uh, Amy Bird, though, because she's uh, not nearly as mean-spirited as you. She is <laughs> Indeed, a, a rose between two middle-aged, balding, and bitter <laughs> thorns. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Well, I want to talk today about, uh, I wouldn't say it's one of the most pressing issues facing the church, but a family of pressing issues that are facing the church at this time, and that is the, the chaos, the anarchy that surrounds the whole idea of sexuality and sexual uh, morality. We're all aware of the, the major headlining issues, uh, such as same-sex marriage, uh, but there are a, a plethora Oh, that's a complicated word for you there, Todd, aren't you? Yeah, a would you plethora, meaning that? a very large number indeed of <laughs> other issues that are bubbling just below the surface. Uh, recently, I think in California, there was a, a legal debate about whether a five-year-old transgender person uh, should be a, have a, a bathroom, a nondescript gender bathroom of their own. And every day, it seems, when one switches on the television, one is bombarded both with sexual images and with philosophies, ideas, narratives, plots that fundamentally reconfigure what we, we might now call old-fashioned traditional sexual morality and ideas of sexual identity. So I want to talk today about a whole host of issues that are pressing in on the church pastorally and are likely to continue to do so in an intensifying form for the near mm -hmm. future. Uh, Todd, any immediate uh, reflections on the current anarchy yes. in the sexual world? Well, actually, the, the example you brought up uh, dealing with uh, the the, uh, the idea of gender confusion, etc. I, I remember when when the debate uh, regarding sexuality, sexual chaos, if you like, um, really had to do with pretty much confined to the area of uh, to, to the issue of homosexuality. Well, now it's it's as if we've we've jumped the proverbial shark and. Uh, the debate is even over the reality of gender itself. So not only, I mean, we, we, have, we have lost touch with reality to the extent that, that, that we're denying uh, the very existence of gender as, as a reality, as an objective uh, reality, but something rather that can change, 
something that can uh, morph uh, not only just between male and female, but to entirely new uh, categories, and that we're, we've become free to identify ourselves uh, in whatever sense we uh, we please. And so chaos, I think, is a, is a very good way to describe what's going on sexually. Yeah, one of the interesting things about what you've just said, Todd, is that when you want takes a step back from this and looks at the current situation, particularly on the issue of gender, is the whole thing is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely asinine <laughs> uh, to argue that gender is a purely constructed reality. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the, the phrase one often hears when transgender people are interviewed on the television and they'll talk about being a man or a woman trapped in a body of the opposite gender. Right. That is a very bizarre phrase to use. The idea of being trapped in one's body. What does that exactly mean? What does it mean? It seems to speak volumes about attitudes to, well, everything to, from external authority to, to biology. Right. I'm not even sure that my grandfather would have had the categories for understanding no. that statement. No, and, and I, I, I don't know that I've got the categories to understand it either. And just as as you've said, because it's asinine, it flies in the face of what can clearly be known. And that's why I think at the heart of this debate over gender in our culture um, is ultimately an assault against uh, the created order. Um, I'm not saying that people cannot suffer from confusion. We live in a fallen, sinful world. Of course, people are confused about issues of sexuality and their own identity. But but to take the fact that sinful people can be confused and turn it into a, a prescription for denying the reality of gender, I believe is an assault against God as creator, that we are made in his image, male and female. Um, so it really is a theological uh, yeah. issue. And we seem to be encouraging the confusion instead of um, mm-hmm. teaching and yeah. in love and trying yeah. to clear it up. Yeah. So. Well, because we, we, can't, we, we can't say anymore this is ridiculous. <laughs> well, we can on this program. We, we can on this program. <laughs> that makes us unemployable <laughs> right. in the rest of the uh, right. country, of course. Exactly. Because to, and, and, and that, that points up the difficulty in having this debate outside of a Christian worldview. Um, because it really is ridiculous. But apart from the presupposition that God is creator and that we are made in his image, male and female, if you jettison that, um, it, it's difficult to find something objective to appeal to, to say that denying gender is ridiculous. Yeah, it's interesting you put it that way, Tan, because it does seem to me that at the root of what we're looking at here, there is a, a repudiation of external authority on mm-hmm. anything being posed upon us from the outside, an exaltation of the individual. And that makes it, you know, one of the interesting things about the current culture in which we live is not simply the absolute obsession with sex, It's also the silence about death. If you Mm -hmm. look at the Victorian era, death is everywhere. It pervades the poetry. It pervades the the artwork that one finds there. Uh, Sex is very much pushed to the margins in Victorian culture. Cut to the present day, sex is everywhere. It's Mm -hmm. on billboards. It's on the television. It's on your computer screen. uh, It's in children's programs now. It's in Sesame Street, for for goodness Mm -hmm. sake. Uh, Well... Death is nowhere to be found. Or if you find it, it's, it's sentimentalized or it's, it's glorified into some sort of cartoon. Uh, death, of course, is 
the one external authority, if you like, that all human beings ultimately have to acknowledge. Mm. We also and have to submit. <laughs> we have to mm-hmm. submit to it. We can't, as with our gender, pretend it doesn't right. exist. Right. Ultimately, it will break in. And I wonder if our, if our obsession with sex is parallel to our silence about death. And what's really going on here is a basic human dislike of anything that imposes limits upon us from the outside. Yeah. And yeah. having just you know, done an interview with Diane Langberg about sexual abuse, it just really opens the door to me while you're saying that, um, if we're gonna throw authority out the window and deny death psychologically, um, just how much more abuse is gonna happen, how much more sexual abuse is gonna happen um, when we have our computers flashing pornographic ads on them and even billboards in West Virginia are, are pretty sketchy and the magazines in the grocery store right at my children's eye level I feel like I have to put my body right in front of mm-hmm. that um, I think it just really opens the door to more and more sexual abuse as well well you also have groups that are more openly now um, fighting against age of consent laws mm-hmm. um, and as, as ridiculous as, as that sort of thing might sound to us, the abolishing of, of age of consent, you know, again, let, let's remember that uh, our current president candidated on being against gay marriage because he couldn't have been elected had he come out in favor of it. And in just a few short years, it, it, we may be at a place where a person's going to have a hard time being elected who is openly opposed to gay marriage. We're not talking about a generation. We're talking about just a handful of years. So these things tend to move quite quickly. And, and I can conceive of a time in our very near future where people will be openly opposing age of consent laws um, without uh, much of a, uh, a public uh, response uh, to that. Um, okay, so I've just, I've just thrown out the, the, the homosexual marriage issue here. Um, why is it, because I, I get this sometimes from people, why is it that oftentimes we treat homosexuality like a sort of a litmus test issue? Um, so people will, you know, we'll talk about, home, well, what about the other kinds of sins? It's not because we're denying other sins, but, but why is it that we do, I think, appeal to homosexuality as a sort of a litmus test issue to find out, kind of gauge where a person's coming from? Any thoughts on that? I think it's the most obvious uh, attack in our current context mm-hmm. on the difference between men and women uh, on the notion of, of external authority. To an extent, our agenda is set by, by the wider culture. We have to respond to the questions or the demands that are being made uh, of us by those outside the church. And that's always been the case in, in church history. Uh, I do think there is a, a note of caution, therefore, that needs to be sounded there, that as we do that, we need to be careful that we don't allow all the terms of the debate to be set by mm-hmm. the culture around us. Uh, I often get worried about the, the whole you know, Christian manhood thing. I mean, goodness gracious me. If, anybody, you know, if there's another book written on either idolatry or Christian manhood, <laughs> I think I'm going to jump on a plane, fly to where that person lives, and beat them with it. Uh, that, that we can allow the obsessions of the culture to become the, the, the soul-driving things mm-hmm. and, to, and indeed to set the agenda. So all we ever do is react and propose the an equal and opposite force as being the biblical position. Mm-hmm. But having said that, 
homosexuality is, I think, the big issue. It's the one that is doing most to break down the differences that exist between men and women. Mm -hmm. And and I will say, I I agree with everything you said, uh, Carl, which is unusual. But I will say this. um, I I think it's important for the church to address, for instance, the issue of, of biblical manhood in that we seem to be raising a generation of girly men. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a way now to uh, to soften that phrase, um, but I can't think <laughs> yes, of one. But, let's, but, let's but, hear that. But, but manhood, masculinity has been treated more like a disorder to be, to be overcome rather than something that is unique and good uh, that God has... So, so boys mm. who act like boys in school are given medication for it so that they'll stop acting like boys. Um, and, and the church, I, th- I think, does have a responsibility to, to talk back um, against that sort of, of thing. I, I agree with you to an extent there, Todd, while we're in the middle of a <laughs> oh, it's mutual uh, affirmation. But I would say one, one needs to be very careful that notions of manhood are not driven by uh, Westerns from the 1940s and 1950s, sure. for example. Sure. That when I read, read some of these books uh, produced on manhood in the United States, they strike me as very distinctively American. They're well, that is be, manhood, Carl. <laughs> Granted, you all, you all gave us David Bowie, but... Um, hey, uh, Europe gave you Napoleon. Uh, Britain, uh, we, we have, David Bowie was, a, I have to say, an aberration. <laughs> we also gave you Led Zeppelin. We also True. gave you The Who, True. Roger Daltrey. There is no more man's man as a leader of a rock band than Roger Daltrey. Anyway, uh, getting back to the sensible point I was trying to make. Just because we get around I think we do need to be careful that we don't simply allow a nostalgia for a a certain kind of past to shape our understanding of uh, manhood. Remember, a few years ago, I think it was the cover of, might have been Time magazine or Newsweek. We wouldn't be able to publish it now because it would be seen as racist or homophobic, but the cover of the magazine had a picture of an Asian guy on it, and and the headline was, Is he gay or Asian? Mm. And the point being made was uh, American understandings of manhood just don't fly in Asia. That's not how manhood is is understood. So we do need to be a bit careful that we don't allow uh, John Wayne uh, to be read into the pages of Scripture so that he can simply be read Mm -hmm. out of them. Because it could be Bruce Lee as well. It could Mm -hmm. be Bruce Lee as well. Like my brother, he's a a mixed martial arts instructor and Mm -hmm. he has his own academy. And he's very tough. You, he can mm-hmm. you take a lot of people on in the, in the ring. But the thing is, he's also the most gentle man I know. Mm-hmm. And when he walks into a room, you would have no idea what he does for a living. He's also the one that's going to walk the old lady to her car. He's mm-hmm. going to open all the doors for me, his sister, yeah. pull out the chair. So, I mean, I think that it's different for every man, obviously, but even we characterize something like someone who's a fighter and think, well, they're going to be a certain personality, a certain attitude, a certain aura when they walk in a room. And I think meekness is mm-hmm. a really a good quality sure. in manhood. Sure. And I think in contrast to your brother, you have Carl and I, who, who are not very <laughs> tough, but we're awfully mean. Yeah. <laughs> See? So. 
Yeah. Different forms. Different Just men. different ways to be a man, <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think, is, is what we're talking about there. Okay, so I, I, I want to mention this because I think it's related. Carl, I doubt you're going to think it's related. I don't know where oh, Amy stands because Amy, Amy, I don't know if you all know this, but, but Amy's uh, a, a cage fighter. She's, uh, she's made quite a name for herself on the circuit um, out there um, in various uh, 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 you know, fist fighting um, <laughs> type of context. But um, I, I have a feeling Carl, um, being a, a European, um, is going gonna, is gonna to disagree with me on this. But I see very much a connection between this sort of gender chaos and now the news that we as a country are lifting restrictions from women serving in combat roles. And here's why, Carl, I see you rolling your eyes, <laughs> He's don't taking you? taking a deep breath. I, 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 and Because and, and, here's the deal. I think it is a failure of the responsibility that men have to be protective, to put our daughters in a situation where they can take on a role that I do not believe God designed them to take on where the kinds of horrors that would be inflicted upon them in combat should be naturally responded to by men um, as, as, uh, to, to protect, not to put them forward into combat. And I think it's related to the breakdown of the divine categories, the divinely given categories of, of gender distinction. Well, as they say, uh, you can take the boy out of the Southern Baptist Convention, <laughs> but you can't take the Southern Baptist Convention out of the boy. Uh, okay, Todd, uh, question response then. Should I be disciplining people in my church who think that women should be in combat in the military? If I had a woman in my church who was a, a combatant in mm. the Iraq war, should I be disciplining her for having sinned? I don't know that that would be the right response, although, although, although you've just said it's a sin for women I, to serve in the military in combat. Zone. No, no, no. Listen, I, I said, I said that we should not be doing it. And yes, I think it is a sin so it for, should be for a country to put its daughters <laughs> into combat. However, I can, I can understand a category. I mean, if, if that's going to be the position of our, of our nation, then we are going to have women who will be put in combat, not because they're dying to get into combat. But because if you're a woman in the military, now part of your responsibility is potentially going to be uh, to, uh, to take up arms and, and fight. That is, I believe, a sin of our, and do you of, think, of our elected officials. You think these women who sign up then to join the army probably didn't make the connection between the army and combat and would therefore be surprised when they were drafted <laughs> to areas of combat. Absolutely, because because we've had restrictions against women serving in combat roles. So if I have a woman in my congregation who says to me, I'm in the army and I went into the army because I wanted to fight in a combat zone, should I discipline her? Um, I would say you begin by instructing her. What happens if I have a woman in my congregation who comes to me and says, I've committed adultery? Should I begin by instructing oh, her? Well, I, I think part of the discipline <laughs> well, process is, is instruction, uh, for sure. And, and I, want our, I want our listeners to make sure that they, <laughs> that they are not dazzled by Carl's accent at this point. <laughs> if you think for some reason he's winning this debate, it's only because of his accent. It's like being dazzled with stage lights. Mm. Well, anyway, moving on from the nineteen, <laughs> moving on from the nineteen eighties and theonomy at this point, uh, one one last uh, area to think about relating to manhood, womanhood, and the rising generation. 
One of the things that, that strikes me that is a potential pastoral disaster in the making for the church is uh, the rise of fa- uh, families with absentee fathers. Hmm. And here's how I'd, I'd pitch it. You have a, a family without a father. You have a culture where, by and large, everybody under the age of 25 has either been exposed to internet pornography Every male in the age of 25 has either been exposed to internet pornography or is struggling to resist it. Uh, the models for how to relate to women are therefore coming from just about the worst mm-hmm. place, uh, if you like. It's the, it's the marriage handbook drawn up by Hieronymus Bosch. Mm. It's the worst place well that one could, could think of. What can the church do in these situations. You know, I'd be interested to hear from Amy on the standpoint of, from a woman's perspective, what should the church be doing for husbands and wives where the husband is really struggling with pornography? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's a wide range there. You, you have a situation where a husband's going to be repentant and wants help. Another situation where maybe that's not the case. Um, but uh, a- Amy, from a, a Christian layperson's perspective who's also a mother and a wife Mm -hmm. what do you think would be a helpful response from the church like even before the step of the you know the couple coming for the elders and saying you know we're having this problem my husband's addicted to pornography i think the church is often so quiet about it because it's embarrassing sure and it's uncomfortable to talk about and so i think we need to raise awareness before that and especially when you have the, the single moms and raising sons and absent fathers or maybe fathers that are very bad examples to their sons, we need some men in the church who are willing to um, model that for them, willing to establish relationships with some of the, the younger men in the church and um, take them on and be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And I think mentoring is a huge part of that. And so I also think that it's important not to be separating everyone in the church by age all the time. Yes. And I think that causes a huge problem. We have the youth group doing so many things on their own, and youth group can be a wonderful thing, but we need to make sure to combine the youth with our adults to see the healthy marriages in the church as well, communicating with one another. Mm -hmm. And then when you do get to that point, of course forgiveness is important, but I feel like so often... I see, okay, well, we forgive you, stop sinning now. Right. And there are very few steps taken afterwards, um, even just checking up on the person. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times I feel like the wife is just left to struggle alone. And there's very practical issues involved Mm -hmm. when um, there's a husband who's addicted to pornography. A lot of women think, I know I was talking to you guys about this before the program, that okay, my husband's addicted to pornography, but if I take a strong stance against this, this could lead to separation or worse. And then what am I going to do? Give my kids custody on the weekends and let them be exposed to it even more? At Mm -hmm. least now I have some control. So we need some good resources to use, and we need to prepare ahead of time how we're going to react to these situations. Mm -hmm. And the church needs to treat it as a sin that is serious. Yes. um, Because, again, I I think what a lot of people might have a difficult time trying to relate to is how it must feel for the wife, the, the kind of betrayal that must feel like, 
uh, also understanding, as I think the wife intuitively understands in that moment, uh, about what Jesus taught about lust and adultery in the heart. Mm -hmm. It certainly is going to feel like there's been at least a measure of adultery going on to the wife. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we have Jesus to appeal to, to say that she ought to feel that way. Well, and then she feels low at that point too. And so that's something you really have to minister to is to her own femininity, her Mm -hmm. own ability to excite her husband. Right. Right. And, and how do we stop, um, the, 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 the perpetuating of this to our, to our sons who have the kind of access to pornography that we couldn't have even imagined when, when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Could not have even imagined the kind of quick, easy access. It, it, I mean, honestly, I despair at times wondering if it's just too late. I know. I like just in the grocery store, um, this has been a while. I remember there was a Sports Illustrated issue, the bathing suit issue of all the supermodels and there they were right in the front and it was very inappropriate and I was there with my children and it was right at their eye level and it wasn't in the magazine section it was in the checkout section well I took my kids and I marched over to the manager and I said you know this is the situation I think this is unacceptable here's my children do you want to look at them right now and tell them why you have this magazine <laughs> That's here great. and um, he apologized he said it should have been in the magazine section yeah. of Martin's grocery store yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, why is that even in there? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think we need to, even outside of the church, take that stand, let our kids take that stand. And I know, you know, there's plenty of times, though, where I'm like, you know, there's the billboard we just passed again for uh, liposuction. Right. And there's a, a woman's stomach that my child can see, you know. Right. So telling, and I'm more concerned about my daughters there because yeah. it's saying this is what a stomach should look like. Right. Right. <laughs> and you get surgery if it doesn't. Right. Right. Yeah, I want to mention a book briefly just before Todd wraps us up, uh, something I've been reading recently that I found very helpful. It's not actually a, a distinctively Christian book, but it is a collection of essays on the way uh, pornography is affecting both psychology and mm-hmm. culture today. It's entitled The Social Costs of Pornography, a collection of papers edited by James R. Stoner Jr. and Donna M. Hughes. Very, very good book. I would recommend that all pastors, anybody dealing with somebody struggling with pornography should get hold of this book and read it because it will deepen your understanding of all of the issues that surround pornography, not just the obvious sexual and lust kind of issues. Yeah. That's good. That's good. And I would also recommend a book um, called Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. Um, it is uh, written by a, uh, a Christian. Um, there's a Christian worldview um, at work there, but obviously gets into the science of, of, of the brain and shows, I think, quite convincingly um, how pornography is addictive, what it does to the brain. And also, again, speaks to the issue of, of how God has designed us to work uh, in the first place. So hope that that has been, um, has been helpful for you. Again, uh, this has uh, been Mortification of Spin. You can check out our website, mortificationofspin.org, a casual conversation about things that, uh, that count. And we hope that uh, this has been uh, helpful to you. 
Um, if nothing else, you now know that uh, Carl Truman thinks it makes sense <laughs> to strap a rifle on daughters and send them to a battlefield. I think that that was the bottom line. As, of, as long of as the they debate. can shoot straight, as long as they can <laughs> and as long as they can do three pull-ups, right? And they have to be able to do more pull-ups and, than Todd. And, and I think after <laughs> after Amy describing her her uh, her situation at, at at the supermarket, I, I might have to moderate my view on women in combat. It might be okay now. So yeah, we're already in combat. Exactly, exactly. So thank you for listening. Mortification of Spin. Talk to you next time. This has been Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And we'd like to give you a free resource. Visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to find a link to the download. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include Reformation21.org, Every Last Word with Philip Reichen, and events held from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue to bring you Mortification of Spin with your support. To make a donation, please visit MortificationOfSpin.org or call 800-488-1888. Please listen again and don't forget your free download.